Amateur footage of UFOs has been bouncing around the internet for decades, and a lot of these alleged sightings have gone viral, but few have drawn serious attention. Until recently. Pentagon has now declassified three videos showing Navy fighter pilots interacting with unidentified flying objects. A report that the government cannot explain those mysterious objects caught on video by the military. Videos which add fuel to the belief of some, we are not alone. One of the videos released by the Pentagon shows a mysterious object flying in ways that defy the laws of physics. The video was captured by a Navy pilot off the coast of Florida. Oh my gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. What do you think, dude? It's rotating. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. The Pentagon's recent UFO report investigated 144 UFO sightings across the country, and only one UFO was actually identified. It turns out it was just a large deflated balloon. Pretty disappointing stuff for true believers out there. But not everyone is disappointed. Some people have celebrated the report for finally taking UFOs seriously. With good reason, producer Matt Darrow has more. Cameron Pack has lived in Virginia Beach almost his entire life. The city has the unique distinction of being both a tourist destination and a major military base. He says for those who stay around, Virginia Beach leaves a lasting mark. It's weird in a way because it's touristy, it's military, there's a lot of transient nature to it. It's a bizarre way of uh, existing, I guess. Nothing is uh, for certain, you could say. As a kid, Cameron watched the popular sci-fi shows of the 90s. From Unsolved Mysteries to The X-Files, he was hooked on all things paranormal, something he says he grew out of as he got older. By my late teen years, I was basically ready to assimilate into normal, mundane society and put those beliefs behind me, I guess. Child, childhood beliefs, as you know, some people would say. It's, <laughs> mm. But Cameron's assimilation was short-lived. It was the middle of the night back in 2003. He was driving home from 7-Eleven with a friend. What happened next changed his life forever. Um, we're driving into the neighborhood, take a couple turns, and surprisingly, when we took the last turn, kind of curve, I was shocked to see this lighted uh, formation. And I assumed it's a helicopter. That's the only thing that flies that low. Um, it was literally like right over the houses. and. I told my friend to stop, um, so we're sitting there waiting for it to come out. It takes a few seconds, and we're just like staring at it. And like my friend's like, "Do you see that?" I'm like, "Yeah." And there's no structure to it, no outline, no silhouette. It's just basically a formation of lights, uh, three white, yellowish, incandescent colored lights, I guess you would say. And they're in a triangle formation: one in the front, two in the back, and it's basically creeping along towards this, uh, I would estimate, one mile an hour at most. Cameron's friend had recently returned from Disney World and still had a few photos left on his disposable camera. Lucky for them, he still had the camera in the car. You know, my friend had said, look, you know, it's in the glove box, take it out, you know. As the UFO hovered in full view, Cameron rifled through the glove box and found the camera. But it was a disposable camera, so he had to wind the film before taking a picture. By the time I looked up again, it was to my right. At this point, though, it was different. It was making a very weird noise that I've never heard before. You would describe it as some kind of organic screaming. Um, still no structure to it. Just see the two back lights as it's drifting off to our right. We tried pursuing it, tried getting out on the main road, but we couldn't find it. It was just, it was so low to the ground. It was like, I guess, about three stories off the ground. You could hit it with a baseball if you wanted to. From then on, Cameron has devoted his life to the study of UFOs. He's a certified UFO investigator and has published two books on the history of UFOs in Virginia Beach. He says the night of his UFO sighting upended his whole world, and it's a feeling he's been chasing ever since. I haven't had that feeling till really I read the UFO report because it's basically been acknowledged and it's not a joke. It's like coming full circle, I guess, for me, where... All of my life since that sighting, it was never taken seriously by anyone in the military or government. Um, and that has changed. The Pentagon's UFO report came out a few months ago. 
and for UFO enthusiasts, it was a huge deal. It seemed the government was finally acknowledging the existence of UFOs, but almost all of its findings were inconclusive. For Cameron, that's beside the point. It all just brings together what creates a very credible case. It is not like, you know, Grandma was standing in the backyard. Oh, wow, she saw something. Who cares? You know, it's, uh, it's, it's not like, you know, and even if you had a dinner party out there, you know, barbecuing and 50 people saw it, still, well, who cares? It just came and went. So for years, decades, there's been a wasted opportunities of mm-hmm. investigating amazing encounters and the whole stigma of never talking about it or else you're going to lose your job or people will think you're nuts is being removed After the Pentagon's report, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks, sent out a memo stating that the Department of Defense will be expanding the investigation. NASA has also pledged to look into the UFO sightings. So while we might not know yet if we've been visited by aliens, UFOs have become more than just a fringe topic. And Cameron says that's a giant leap in the right direction. For With Good Reason, I'm Matt Dara. As kids, many of us were captivated by the wonder of outer space. We'd imagine ourselves zooming through the stars on a spaceship and picture black holes whisking us to faraway galaxies. But as adults, a lot of that curiosity faded away. Kelsey Johnson is an astronomy professor at the University of Virginia. She teaches a class called the Unsolved Mysteries of the Universe. Her goal is to rekindle her students' curiosity for the cosmos. Kelsey, you're teaching such a fascinating class. It's called Unsolved Mysteries of the Universe. When did you first become curious about the universe? I mean, really so. For me, it actually started, now bear with me here, it started as sort of a spiritual quest. I was raised evangelical Lutheran, and um, we were very poor, and we didn't have very many books, but we did have three different versions of the Bible, I remember as a kid thinking, wow, it's pretty amazing that we have learned so much about the universe from this one single book that has different versions. Like, how did people figure that out? And at some point realizing um, (laughs) there were other books that one could consult. And at some point, my quest for knowledge sort of outpaced what I found that my religious beliefs could offer me. But I still really just deeply at the core of who I am need to understand why we're here, what our purpose is, all these sort of existential and metaphysical questions. They keep me up at night, literally every night, uh, and I can't not think about them. So it's hard for me to understand why other people don't think about them too. Even in grad school, you have described a powerful experience you had as you were studying the Big Bang Mm -hmm. and trying to understand how we came from nothing to something. That was a really interesting, I think, light bulb moment for me as, as a scientist and as a, as a human being. You know, one of the huge, I think maybe even the hugest outstanding question in the universe is where did it all come from? Like what, why do we have something instead of nothing? And, um, you know, in common parlance, we call this the Big Bang. Um, so for example, why did the Big Bang happen? What caused it? And one of the more, I would say, scientific hypotheses is that it came from a quantum fluctuation. And the reason this is sort of, I guess, I wouldn't say it's accepted scientifically, but it's accepted as a plausible hypothesis because we know that these things called quantum fluctuations happen. There's sort of this loophole in the laws of physics that would have allowed the universe to be created that way. But we could say, so what caused the Big Bang? And, okay, let's say it's quantum fluctuations. Well, what caused that? And what caused, what caused, what caused that? And we find ourselves in this infinite regression that philosophically is fairly troublesome. And this, to me, was a really big epiphany as a graduate student to be thinking, you know what, there are really big, really important questions that we may not be able to talk about scientifically because we can't test them. And if we can't test something it's outside of the realm of science, but that doesn't mean they're not important, and it surely doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about them. Most of us learn about black holes through sci-fi films like Star Trek, where spaceships depend on them for interstellar travel, 
But what do we actually understand about black holes? Do they work as a kind of shortcut to other galaxies? Oh, black holes. <laughs> they are they are maybe the best plot device ever in science fiction. So one thing we know um, that maybe people have commonly come to accept now, but they didn't a few decades ago, was that they exist. Like, they're not just someone's brainstorm to to make science fiction plots work. They do actually exist. And that, <laughs> that's, that sort of is almost at the end of what we know. Um, one of the things we also know from general relativity, thanks to Einstein, is that we have these dimensions. We have three dimensions of space that we normally move within, right? We have up and down and left and right, front and back. And then there's this dimension of time, which somehow seems more more abstract and different than the three dimensions of space to us living here on Earth. But in relativity, these three dimensions of, of space and one dimension of time are actually entwined. And what happens is that when you get something with enough mass that's so small that it's incredibly, incredibly dense, it actually warps that fabric of space-time in a really incredible way. And that's what we think is happening with black holes. It could be that a black hole actually punctures this fabric of space and time. We don't know because we can't, we can't test what happens inside a black hole. It could be that this warped fabric of space-time actually connects up to another region in space and time. This is called, um, well, technically, it's called an Einstein-Rosen bridge. Colloquially, we call it a wormhole. And if wormholes exist, they could connect different regions of space within our own universe. They could connect different different times. They could even connect us to other universes. And these are these are things we don't know. And um, I wouldn't say we're in danger of testing anytime soon. So in addition to the fundamental thing of why are we here, what started us is who else is here? And I've read that you believe that within the next generation or two, we might be able to observe extraterrestrial life. Really? That soon? I don't think it's crazy. You know, if I were a betting person, and I don't think I've ever actually truly bet on anything. Oh, that's not true. I bet on a horse race once. Um, but if I were a betting person, I would bet that within the next couple generations, we will detect signs of extraterrestrial life. But I don't mean little green people flying around in flying saucers. What I mean is that we are developing the technological ability and in fact, we have it now um, in many cases, we are developing the technological ability through observatories that exist to look at planets in other solar systems elsewhere in the galaxy and figure out, for example, what's in their atmosphere. And one of the things you can do if you can if you can decode what's in the atmosphere of a planet is you can look for byproducts of life. Now, that doesn't mean, again, you're not seeing little green people flying around, but you're starting to get clear signs that there might be life elsewhere in the universe. And I, I think that is likely to happen sooner than later. Okay. Million dollar question. <laughs> There's been all of this UFO info in the news, videos of possible sightings by American pilots. Mm -hmm. And the Pentagon has just released a report what is your take? First, very simply, do you think we've likely been visited by aliens or something else? <laughs> um, I don't think it's likely that they are aliens, but that doesn't mean that that's not the case. Certainly, the pilots who have given these reports have seen something unidentified. But I think we have to be really careful when we jump from saying something is unidentified to assuming that means it has to be extraterrestrial life. And just assuming that something is is an extraterrestrial origin because it's unidentified, we would need a lot more evidence to come to that conclusion. But one thing I will say that I think is really important is regardless of what the origin of these unidentified objects is, I think they're really important to study, right? Because well, if they are extraterrestrial life, um, we sure as heck want to know about that, right? If there's a threat to our national security, well, we would want to know about that too. Or 
if there's some new natural phenomenon that uh, is manifesting that we hadn't observed before, we want to understand that too. And so for me as a scientist, when there's something that's, that's unknown and unexplained, that's when scientists get really excited. When you think about the universe as an astronomer, what is most beautiful to you? What thrills you still about it? Oh, I think what is most... What is most compelling to me about the universe is its complexity, but its complexity is is balanced in this really interesting way. The universe as it is, is this amazing balance between patterns and symmetries and things that are not quite symmetric, right? That make it interesting. So you could go out in your backyard today if you have a yard or go find a tree and look at a leaf, it's almost perfectly symmetric, but not quite. And the universe is full of things like this that are almost perfect patterns, but not quite. And that to me is just incredibly rich and deeply fascinating. And I find so much beauty in the fact that the universe is balanced in this way. And I just, I love being out in nature. You know, I live out in the woods and, um, you know, just finding examples of this everywhere around us, to me, just it gives me goosebumps every time I think about it. Does it also make you anxious or scare you to think that you will live your entire lifetime and never get to the root of these fundamental questions about origins and our place? Yeah, this is what keeps me up at night. The thought that I could go through my entire existence and then be gone without having a better understanding of how things work and why they are the way they are to me is, I don't even know what the right adjective is for an emotion. It's not really anxiety. It's not really depression. It's more of a, of a yearning. I think a lot about how, you know, we talked about the fabric of space and time earlier um, there are days when I almost feel confined, almost like, um, almost like you're living, imagine that you're living in a building without windows, which sounds really depressing. You're living in a building without windows. You believe there to be things on the other side of the walls, but you have no way to observe it or to test it or to see it. But to spend your whole life in that, in that building without windows, not knowing what's on the outside, I guess maybe that's the best way I can, I can try to explain the way I feel like our existence is in, 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 this, in these three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. Kelsey Johnson is an astronomy professor and the director of the Eccles Scholars Program at the University of Virginia. So if aliens really are out there, when will we meet them? For decades, Hollywood has imagined what it might be like if Earth was visited by aliens. One of the most iconic examples is the 1951 movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. The scene starts when a flying saucer lands on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. The ship is now resting exactly where it landed two hours ago, and so far there is no sign of life from inside it. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. We have come to visit you in peace and with goodwill. My next guest is Robin Hansen. He's an economics professor at George Mason University, and he's come up with a mathematical model that predicts when we might encounter an advanced alien civilization. Spoiler alert, it's a lot farther off than you would think. Robin, we've always looked in the sky and wondered if we were alone. Why are people so fascinated about the possibility of alien life, do you think? We're lonely. <laughs> it's a big, vast universe, and it would be kind of a shame if it were just us. I mean, centuries ago, we loved stories about all the strange people you could meet around the world, and now we've seen the whole world, and we'd like to see something else. You've come up with a model to try to answer the question of, are there aliens out there, and when might we encounter them? You call it the Grabby Aliens Model. It's a great name. Should it tell us whether we're alone and when we'll encounter others? 
Yes. So the key idea is there's two kinds of aliens we could think about, quiet and loud. The quiet ones are kind of hard to study because they're hard to see and know much about. But there's these other kind, the loud kind, who would be pretty hard to miss. <laughs> loud aliens, they appear somewhere and then they grow really fast and they change the appearance of the volumes they're in. They just make a big visible splash. Are we loud aliens, would you say? Not yet. So we have a chance to become loud aliens and probably would in the next 10 million years, but we haven't gotten there yet. That is, if somebody were looking at us from a long way away, they could hardly see us. Help me understand, in a very simplistic way, the parameters that you have. There are three fundamental parameters in your mathematical model. Right. So one parameter is the rate at which advanced life appears. If it appeared really fast, it would all appear, say, in the first billion years. And if it appears really slow, it might take 100 billion years. There's so just some rough overall parameter. A second parameter is the rate at which this rate accelerates. That is, initially, there's almost nothing. And then slowly, over time, more and more stuff happens. And that's because life has to go through a number of hard steps, a number of difficult evolutionary steps to become advanced like us. And the number of those hard steps will set that sort of rate of acceleration. And the third parameter is the rate at which these civilizations expand into the universe to colonize and change it. And if that rate were really slow, then it turns out we would see a lot of them in our sky right now. They would be big circles in the sky expanding as they came closer to us. We don't see any circles like that. And so we conclude from that that the rate of expansion is over half the speed of light. They are going really, really fast. And that's why we don't see them. We won't really see them until they're almost here. Uh, and those are the three parameters. And each of those parameters is estimated based on data that we can see right now. And that means this isn't a hypothetical model of what if. This is a model fitted to data. Do you think we'll meet aliens? Hopefully. <laughs> it could be that most civilizations like us show up and then we kill ourselves fast or we don't last. And only a small fraction of us go on to become big grabby aliens. And in that case, it's only if we last long enough to expand would we meet them. So our model says that we would roughly meet them in, say, a billion years. And each grabby alien civilization would have encompassed, say, a million galaxies. So they're really far away. And to see them, you have to wait a long time. You have to wait until they get here. A billion years seems inconceivable, doesn't it? <laughs> well, the universe is 14 billion years old. <laughs> So we definitely believe it will last another billion. The question is whether we'll be around that long. And it's a very ambitious challenge. Could we last long enough to meet the grabby aliens? If you knew that we could see them earlier, would you want to encounter loud aliens or advanced aliens? I think you have to have mixed feelings about encountering big, loud, grabby aliens. We're lonely, and it would sure be fascinating to know what's going on out there. But we're really the tiny young ones on the block here. <laughs> we're not up to their level at all. Now, plausibly within, say, a million years, we will be up to their level. Then we will have explored all the different technological possibilities and we will have an ability like they do. But right now, they are just vastly more advanced than us. So if they don't take a liking to us, <laughs> we are very vulnerable. So one or two billion years from now, when we have the first encounter with an advanced alien civilization that has expanded far and wide. Help me imagine what that could be like. Okay, so, so on the way to meeting the first grabby aliens, we will have come across and met a lot of non-grabby aliens, or at least their wreckage and ruins. <laughs> we will just be going for, you know, millions and even billions of years, expanding out as fast as we can, looking everywhere we can to see if they're coming. And we won't see them coming, but we will come across the ruins of a few prior alien civilizations that existed for a while and then died. And we will want to know, well, what does that tell us about what aliens everywhere are like? How do they vary across all the different dimensions of personality and aggressiveness and inquisitiveness? And we'll still hardly feel like we know anything, but then when we finally meet these other grabby aliens, you know, the question will be, are we going to fight? <laughs> is there something they're better at than us? Or is there something we're better at than them? And we'll just be eager for some sort of intelligence because this is really important. A lot is at stake when we finally meet them. What have you thought when you've seen the recent news reports about UFO sightings reported by American pilots? I actually sat down and asked myself, how could this make sense? So I used my expertise to say, okay, a lot of people think this couldn't possibly be true because there's just no plausible scenario under which this would happen. But I asked myself, well, 
is there a plausible scenario? And turns out there is. <laughs> so, and I say, okay, this isn't crazy. I mean, it might not be true, but it's not crazy. There is a plausible story under which these things we see actually would be aliens. What could it be? These could be grabby aliens is what you're saying? Actually, these are definitely not grabby aliens. <laughs> that is, grabby aliens, you know, there would be this huge circle in the sky of them coming here, and then, you know, the very first ones would get here, and, and it would be this huge thing you would no, not be able to miss. So if UFOs are aliens, they are not grabby aliens. They are quiet ones. They are apparently trying to hide somewhat. <laughs> but one plausible place they could come from is they could be our panspermia siblings. That is, our sun started in a nursery where a thousand stars all were born at the same time, and it's possible that that entire nursery was seeded with life from some prior planet. And then all of those stars, you know, went out and spread in the galaxy, harboring life and slowly developing. And then one of those other planets became advanced before us. <laughs> and then it would go looking for its siblings and coming here, perhaps, to wait for us to become advanced. And they might not want to destroy us, and maybe even have some agenda for us. <laughs> what do you wish for us as the aliens to sort of go out into the universe and beyond? What do you hope to see humans do? I'd like humans to make it the billion years to not only survive, but become grabby ourselves so that we could meet grabby aliens, and then become part of the larger society of grabby aliens that would exist. So if we meet them in a billion years, our universe will have another 150 billion years of time when these different grabby alien civilizations can see each other and interact. And then they would have some sort of a social culture where they would look at the other civilizations and ask, what elements do we respect there that we might want to copy? <laughs> and then each of us would want to be worthy of being copied. That is, not only we want to survive and last until then, we would like to impress the rest of them with something about ourselves that the rest of them thought was worthy of emulation and praise. You know, become not only part of the elites, but to be respected by the elites in the universe. Robin Hansen, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thanks for having me. Robin Hansen is an economics professor at George Mason University. You can learn more about his Grabby Aliens model at GrabbyAliens.com. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Mainstream accounts of UFO encounters are mostly horror stories of abduction and alien implants. But within the African-American community, there's a uniquely different UFO tradition. Stephen C. Finley is a religious studies professor at Louisiana State University. He says many African-Americans describe UFO encounters as positive experiences. This originally aired in 2018 on our sister show, Backstory, the American History Podcast. Ed, Brian, citizens of the universe, recording angels, we have returned to claim the pyramids, partying on the mothership. Party on, Nathan. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Those are actually the lyrics from a 1975 Parliament concept album, Mothership Connection, and according to our next guest, it had some heavenly inspiration. George Clinton said that that he and Bootsy Collins were on the way from a from a concert when they encountered what he describes as a UFO. This is Louisiana State University scholar Stephen Finley. When they were brought back to themselves, it was several hours later, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and their watches weren't working, right? Mm -hmm. They were they were they were stuck a few hours early. And knowing that, that he and Bootsy Collins are musicians, George Clinton is, is really clear to note that they were not drinking and they were not <laughs> under the influence of substances, right? And he's really clear right. about that because he's right. serious about this and he right. wants to be taken seriously. Clinton isn't the only famous black musician to describe this kind of experience. Charlemagne the God, Prodigy, and poet and jazz musician Sun Ra claim to have had close encounters as well. 
uh, Sun Ra also claims to have uh, made sort of a trip uh, to have been taken somewhere, which for him was near Saturn. Uh, for uh, Sun Ra, black people are part of this angel race, okay. um, which, is, which is cosmic. As with many of these groups, uh, blackness sort of is the, the originary uh, state uh, of, of the universe. Finley says this idea of cosmic blackness is not just found in celebrity narratives. Texas-based twin sisters, Erlene and Sherlene Wallace, described being taken in the 1990s by friendly aliens called galactics. But when you get them to describe the galactics, they say that the galactics appear to them as beautiful black women. He says these stories collectively form a distinct and separate African-American UFO experience, one that's often left out of mainstream ufology, or the study of UFOs. Now, most of the narratives share similarities. They're often tied to religion and spirituality, the aliens are usually black, and evoke Africa or a symbolic homeland. There are certain things that I see that show up in mm-hmm. the narratives mm-hmm. of African Americans who have claimed to have had UFO experiences or what others might call abductions, including the, not using terms like abduction. That's not an African American UFO tradition <laughs> term, for example. So, what are some of the component parts of those narratives? If they're not talking about abductions, for instance, what are some of the mm-hmm. words that they are using? So, for Erlene and Sherlene, i.e., the UFO twins, they use the term trip, and they mean that in a positive way. Hmm. Because in the African American UFO tradition, these accounts are not seen as adversarial or terrifying. In fact, they're almost universally described as friendly. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the primary differences between the African-American accounts and the white ones, which are always, almost always terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. The um, scenes of uh, uh, abduction and— Experimentation. Uh, experimentation, right? Mm-hmm. Sexual surgeries, all those mm-hmm. kind of things. You don't find mm-hmm. those in, in the black accounts. Now, I have to ask this. Is that perhaps because the African-American tradition also includes— Actual abductions, mass abductions, experimentations, certainly, you know, violations of one's sexual autonomy by way of the Middle Passage and the slave trade. Is it your sense that these narratives about unidentified flying objects are, in a way, a Uh departure from what's already a set of dominant themes within African-American history? Mm -hmm. You're making the same connection that some scholars, uh, including myself, make. Mm Mm-hmm. Think about Africa uh, during the slave trade, and all of a sudden, you know, here come these these beings from these ships who have come across the ocean, and all of a sudden, they capture you and whisk you away Mm -hmm. to a new land where you become the alien other. And so it it could be that that's one of the reasons why these narratives get described the way they do. But but the other reason is, is because— these UFO traditions are also closely related to black supernatural traditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For African Americans, generally, the supernatural isn't spooky, right? Ancestors hang around. They help us. They participate and break into, you know, this reality in sort of a regular way. So it's possible then that what you have are a set of ideas about paranormal activity that African-Americans, that African-descended people, certainly different peoples on the continent itself, already have a language for describing. And that by the time you get to the 20th century, the language about UFOs becomes part of that tradition. Is that what you're suggesting? Well, yeah, that's part of part of what I'm suggesting. I mean, this is this is how traditionally African-Americans and Africans engage the world. I mean, the supernatural isn't something so wholly other and spooky. It's a mm-hmm. part of the sort of natural metaphysics. I mean, it is part of the real world, mm-hmm. right? And so there's not this, again, to use the term holy other, that the right. supernatural is this, this, this realm that's so distinctly different from this one. It's all part of the world in which we live, right? And so for African-Americans then who engage UFOs, these aren't spooky, terrifying experiences. They almost all describe them as friendly and familiar, and they almost universally describe so-called aliens as black. Well, give me an example of an early account of an African-American encounter 
with the UFO? Well, what I'll give you is what I think is the most famous one. Mm -hmm. So the Nation of Islam starts around 1930. Um, it's unclear that they're talking about UFOs that early, but by the 19, early 1950s, they clearly are. Mm -hmm. One of the ways then that UFOs show up in uh, one of the present iterations of the, of the Nation of Islam under uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan is that on September 17th, 1985, he claims to have been taken into what he calls the mother wheel. It's an unidentified flying object, and those are his words. And uh, the narrative goes, and I'll try to make it quick, that he climbed atop a, a, a high mountain uh, where there were Aztec ruins. And while he was on that mountain, this vehicle, and he describes it as a vision that was real, not a dream, uh, came, came down, and there were three lights from it, and took, it, took him into uh, that particular vehicle where he says he encountered his former leader, Elijah Muhammad. Mm -hmm. inside the craft. And so that account is really important for the Nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. One cannot properly understand the Nation of Islam without giving serious theoretical attention to the role that UFOs play in, in the religion. And part of the power of these narratives is that they're actually based in religious texts and holy texts, correct? That it's not, it's not just about science fiction literature or even, you know, Cold War era science fiction television, but that there is actually a biblical basis for many of these narratives that African-Americans are sharing. There, there is, but I also think it's all of that. Uh, mm. I also do think that it's, um, it's science, it's science fiction, it's biblical texts, and then I would say that they're either used to sort of inaugurate what I call a sense of transcendent blackness or to deconstruct notions of race. Right, right. Now, now this is really an important point because so much of what in the mainstream society gives blackness meaning is, of course, people of African descent encounter with the institution of slavery, with Jim Crow, with right. different forms of racism, that there's a relationship between the way that African-Americans form their identities as human beings and as communities and mm -hmm. the realities of discrimination. And by using the phrase transcendent blackness, you're actually talking about a kind of blackness that derives its meaning outside of the parameters of white racism. Is that correct? You got it. I mean, I don't even have to explain it. You've, you've clearly <laughs> said it. Blackness was uh, an identity that was constructed over against whiteness. I mean, it was the primary reason why whiteness existed, why whiteness was pure, why whiteness was good. Uh, whiteness was the center, while blackness was the margin. And so you had some political movements that tried to do something about this, right? So the black power movement, you have phrases like, black is beautiful. This attempt to, to valorize blackness, to make it something other than the negative side of sort of this Manichaean divide, right? This right. binary where blackness is bad while whiteness is good. And so when I say transcendent blackness, uh, what I'm talking about are these, these traditions um, such as the Nation of Islam, Sun Ra, the UFO twins, and so on, and their attempt to valorize blackness by circumventing sort of the, the language, sort of the discursive field, uh, which denies us the opportunity um, to, to, to give positive meaning to blackness that the world has to legitimate, right? Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that part of why that's so significant is because the world is seen as so completely and almost totalizingly anti-black, that, that the mm. structures here cannot support anything but, but anti-blackness. And so what do they do? They look out into the heavens to give them a sense of meaning in the concrete world, mm -hmm. right? In a way that allows them to re-envision who they are, to, to empower themselves in a world that they see as, as against them, as, as negating, as anti-Black, and so on. So it's all about this world, but the other world and the imagination and the narratives and the symbols gives them the strength and power to live in this world. That was Stephen C. Finley of Louisiana State University, interviewed by Nathan Connolly for a backstory segment that dropped in 2018. Coming up next, reaching eternal salvation aboard a UFO. Founded in 1974, Heaven's Gate was a religious group 
that believed their souls would be transported to heaven by a UFO. A little over 20 years later, the religious movement was cut short when 39 members committed mass suicide. Benjamin Zeller is a professor of religion at Lake Forest College. He speaks with Backstory host Nathan Connolly about the rise and fall of America's most infamous UFO religion. Heaven's Gate began in the 70s as a group trying to figure out the, the, the nature of, of the soul and the nature of the self and as, it, as that related to what they called the next level, which is outer space and, and UFOs and space aliens. When it began, it was, it was two people, Marshall Herf Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles. And they went uh, traveling all through the West Coast, holding these meetings, trying to get people to convert. And they would tell you they're from outer space, ultimately. And they came from outer space to give us this message about how, how people can be saved, how people can live forever and can leave our planet and go into outer space. And they said, if you want to, uh, if you want to join them, then meet up at a campground in a couple of weeks. <laughs> they'd give you an address. And uh, lo and behold, they'd get a couple dozen, a couple hundred people to show up. Just give me a sense of what the conversation is in the 1970s as the Heaven's Gate movement is emerging. What are Americans thinking or reading or believing about UFOs at that time? There are a couple of different strands in UFO thought or UFOlogy in the 1970s. The government was still having an you know, active study of whether UFOs were a real phenomenon. So mm-hmm. this, was, this was not sort of pseudoscience. One of the, the leading and emerging ones at the time is the idea of ancient astronauts, of alien visitors who visited humanity thousands of years ago and humans were unable to to understand the science or technology of it. So they recorded it using the only language that primitive humans had, which was religious language. This idea is best expressed in Eric von Donneken's Chariots of the Gods, a book that tries to document everything from the Incans of, of Peru to ancient people in China and India and the Middle East. Don't forget the pyramids, right? <laughs> and the pyramids, right. yeah, we're not going to forget, and the pyramids of right. Egypt. At the time in the 70s, people took this really seriously, that all of these are evidence of ancient astronauts who came here, who presented themselves as gods or were understood as gods, and that therefore the message that UFOs bring even today is one which both fulfills biblical and religious prophecy, but also is of relevance to those with spiritual or religious belief. This is really important. And again, in in the 1990s or, or 2000s or today, we look at this and we say it looks like Stargate. So Heaven's Gate has some connection to the Bible and, and a set of beliefs that are coming out of the book of Revelations. And what would you say the beliefs are of the organization at its founding relative to holy texts? At its founding, the two founders believed that they were the two witnesses described in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. And if you don't happen to have your Bible in front of you, that's fine. I'll tell you what it says. Uh, Chapter 11 describes how these two witnesses are um, destined to to preach publicly, and then they're going to be assassinated on the street. And then they're going to become resurrected. They're going to rise from the grave or from the street, and they are going to uh, ascend to heaven. And members of Heaven's Gate believed that their founders were these two witnesses. Their bodies would, would rise from the dead, a UFO would, would come down and hover and pick them up with the tractor beam, and they called this the demonstration. It was the demonstration of two things. Uh, one, that extraterrestrials are real and they have the technology to do this, and two, that we can transcend the human body and the human life and the human earthly existence. What's really important to understand them is they said they didn't believe in this classic image of heaven with clouds and angels with fluffy wings and harps and things like that. They thought that was all, you know, sort of nonsense, that that was all sort of this spiritual stuff. They believed heaven was real. If you had a powerful enough telescope, you could see it. Mm -hmm. Like an actual place. And these UFOs, therefore, weren't just vehicles here for some sort of mundane purpose. They were here for religious or spiritual purposes. They were here to bring knowledge or to fairy beings from our planet into outer space, into heaven. They were the gate to heaven, hence the name Heaven's Gate. Mm. There's a whole range of observed phenomenon that people are trying to explain with the frameworks of their moment, whether it be religious, whether they think about it in terms of science, how do they reconcile a set of religious beliefs with, you know, the way in which people are told and taught that you can only believe in what you can see, touch, and measure? Like, this actually seems as though it's trying to reconcile these two competing strains. 
you know, when, when I look at Heaven's Gate, I see people who really wanted to be empiricists, but also mm. really wanted to believe in the soul. And how, how, do you, how do you deal with that, right? And that was their, that was exactly their problem. They wanted to get to outer space. At first they thought, we're going to physically get on board a spaceship and we're going to fly there. The spaceship is going to hover mid-atmosphere and pick us up in tractor beams and we are going to physically go to the next level and our bodies are going to physically transform they use the words biologically and chemically. Mm. Our bodies are going to biologically and chemically transform into these perfected next-level creatures. That's what they said initially. What happens is that in June 1985, Bonnie Lou Nettles, the co-founder of the group, dies. And when she dies, uh, no UFO comes to pick her up. Mm. And there's no physical proof that anything happens to her. I mean, her body is right there. They have to have it cremated. So they come to the conclusion that her spirit, her soul, her consciousness has uploaded back to her oh. next level body. They still claimed it was scientific, even though ideas about soul transfer and consciousness upload don't sound that scientific. For them, they were. They wanted to keep that idea. It was really important for them that their beliefs were scientific, rational, modern. We're in a moment now, obviously, where science is being denied in so many different corners, right? I mean, we're, we're now many decades after Heaven's Gate, and it seems as if it's an open question whether or not, for instance, climate change can be, you know, proven. Does, does this say anything about the changing nature and value of science in American society? I took a look once for my, my first book. I, I tried to study the way in which new religions were talking about science. My idea was that new religions can really say whatever they want because you have a living prophet. And I was trying to figure out, do new religions talk about science? And the answer I came to was they almost all do. But nearly every new religion I found wanted to challenge the established perspective of science. They wanted to either offer some sort of new science or they wanted to claim that they had some sort of tweaking of existing science. What I take from that is science is accepted by everyone. Everyone wants to be scientific, but people claim that their own perspective on science mm -hmm. is the best one. So climate deniers are a good, exa good example, good idea here. So climate deniers don't claim science itself is bad. Climate deniers claim they have the better science. And that's what Heaven's Gate was doing, too. Mm. And you mentioned that at the founding of the Heaven's Gate movement, it had some possibly up to upwards of 1,000 members. But those numbers were not sustained by the time you get to the 1990s. What happened? They were really a group which, which emerged out of the 1970s. And by the 80s and 90s, they have a real hard time trying to, to do outreach. They feel as if they're just, just not reaching people anymore. And that's part of the end. That's one of the reasons that the group ultimately decided to end on its own terms, is they thought that they had harvested as many souls as they could, that there was almost no one left out there who really was listening to them and was willing to take this step and to try to overcome their humanity. And that's because people in the 90s thought that humanity was pretty good. As you said, the economy <laughs> was going well, right. the country was at peace. You know, it's a different sort of time. And and, and by the 1990s, uh, UFOs and space aliens were part of late night television. They were part of a, the running joke. Uh, there were the, you know, the alien autopsy videos. They were part of the X-Files. It had moved from the heart of culture to a subculture, into popular culture. And, and that's part of the problem for them. What drove members of the group to commit suicide in 1997? So at the end of the group in 1997, so first of all, that they had become completely frustrated with trying to reach out and, and gain converts or even, even, even gain a fair hearing. They, they became a, a joke. Mm. They also, at the same time, became increasingly interested in conspiracy theories. In, in the 1990s, they latched onto conspiracy theories because members of Heaven's Gate believed that UFOs were real. And they believed there was a government conspiracy to, to, to hide the existence of UFOs. And as they got involved in the conspiracy theories, they became deeply invested in this idea that there were these, these truths out there. And so when there was the claim in 1997 that behind Hellbop Comet, there was a trailing UFO and NASA was covering it up, they believed it. Wow. When it got to the point when members of Heaven's Gate were ready to commit suicide, what was the theological or scientific explanation for that? Uh, members of Heaven's Gate, uh, like people of many religions, believe that the body ultimately was less important than the soul, right. uh, the spirit, the mind. And the body was just a container or a vehicle was the term they used. Uh, members of Heaven's Gate thought it was worth it to end their terrestrial existence because they were achieving an extraterrestrial one. Mm. 
They believed that by killing their human vehicles, uh, they were freeing their souls to evolve and to gain extraterrestrial vehicles, which were frankly superior in their minds. They thought that extraterrestrial vehicles didn't age, they didn't die, they didn't need to eat, uh, they didn't need to sleep, they were eternal, they were unending, they were unchanging. This was perfection for them. They were becoming extraterrestrial angels. And from a rational perspective, if you really believe that, it makes sense to them. I'm not saying I want to do it. I'm not saying anyone should do it. I'm just saying it made sense to them. Right. What about the Heaven's Gate movement and about the larger history of UFOs um, teaches us anything? Or what, what, what do we learn about the limits of rationality and things beyond what we can explain from this moment in history? Heaven's Gate was in some ways speaking only to its moment, but in, the other, in some other ways it's, it's speaking to a, a long-standing wish that human beings have had to, to make meaning and to look to the stars for meaning. People have been looking at comets to try to make meaning out of, out of them for thousands of years. Uh, there is a longing to look up in the night sky and find meaning. We, we see this in culture. We've seen it for thousands of years. Heaven's Gate is just one more example of that. Benjamin Zeller is a professor of religion at Lake Forest College and the author of Heaven's Gate, America's UFO Religion. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.